0: Adel Ray, it's absolutely brilliant to have you on 20 Questions with. I, I want to ask you to start with, if I may, just how you see yourself professionally, because you've got so many strings to your bow. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, well, I, I think sort of trying to survive in this business, to be honest. And, and you know, and, and I don't say that flippantly. I, You know, I do think that quite often the, the, the reason why I sort of do a bit of GMB and then be able to do lingo is because to try and stay in the business, you know, I... On the face of it, it can look like, oh, well, he's doing well. Well, I, I don't necessarily have uh, contracts at a lot of these places. I don't have, you know, I very rarely have had a contract in my presenting part of my what I do. It's sort of you, you just go from show to show. And that's, and that's you know, it's it always has been that with me. I've not, not been lucky enough to be one of those that get a, get a long term contract. So w- when you're in that position, you've got to try and look for other work but on the other side from the creative point of view I, I see it all the same i see it all in many ways as storytelling as perspective whether you're on gmb or even lingo um you know i feel that you know for this british pakistani kenyan muslim lad from birmingham you know it's uh, I, I feel like i'm in a a unique position so the more i can uh, tell my story the more it's going to connect with lots of other people who perhaps haven't seen people like them on television before so uh, i think all of it to me Feels the same.
0: For people who wake up to you on Good Morning Britain, explain to them what it's kind of like behind the scenes. Explain the the build-up, the preparation you put in, and then the fun you, you have when you're on set, if it is fun. Yeah,
1: it is fun. And the reason why it is fun is because we have such a brilliant, brilliant team. And I know you hear people say that, oh, that's such a great team. But honestly, I've worked at quite a few places and and the, you can have big teams. I mean, I remember the BBC working on radio shows and they huge teams and they were great as well. But, but there's something very special about a GMB team. I think the fact that they've been up all night, you, you really do feel for them. And so the way it happens is, so, you know, let's say if, if, I, if I'm on, you know, tomorrow by about sort of middle of the afternoon, I will start getting... Some of our items coming in with all the briefs, and they're really good briefs, solid briefs. And you'll read over them. Some of them will come in a bit late because stories are still breaking. Some have changed in the morning because the news agenda has changed. So you've got to be sort of slightly uh, uh, adapt to all of that. Uh, and then we'll – so you you make sure you've read your briefs. You uh, read your briefs, um, and then you go in, and um, we're on air at 6. I think we have a meeting around about – five. So I tend to get in about 4:30, uh, have a bit of breakfast, just read the papers, and then get into that meeting at five. Some people are a bit are in a bit earlier, um, hair and makeup, et cetera. So you have your half-hour meeting at five, and then it's time to sort of I then get into makeup at that point, quickly read just some of the more important briefs or at least the first hours briefs again, and you're away. And you know, and I think um, the re- yeah like so the reason why we can relax with then have fun because you've got such a brilliant team, a very, very experienced team. But I think the thing is, quite a lot of the times with all of these interviews, whether you're speaking to a politician or, you know, amazing cancer survivor or a young child who's, you know, done something amazing or having a debate. You know, the questions are generally, you know, the same thing It sort of make sure you're listening. You know, the key thing is listening. I learned that, you know, a while ago, that if you're not listening to your interviewee, then you're not really interviewing them. So in the end, you know, that, that's that's the key. And then also... I think you've got to be glued into politics all the time. I mean, you know, for me, because I, I, like, I'm on next week. I'm doing two days next week, and I could, I could, I could be in my world of writing, and that, you know, your head is glued to writing, or you could be doing an acting gig, or you could be doing lingo. And sometimes it's quite hard when GMB can suddenly spring up on you and go, "Oh my god, okay, hang on a minute, what, what's what's going on now? What, what's the latest on the strikes?" So really, the trick is to stay glued to politics and, and current affairs all of the time um which you know if you're interested generally interested in right now there's so much stuff going on and it's and it's stuff that really matters so that's the trick really is it's almost do your own homework as well but but my if you didn't do any homework at all you could completely rely on that team they aren't they are quite outstanding
0: explain to us what you're trying to do when you're interviewing a high-profile politician on the big story of the day talk to us about your approach to that yeah, well, I, th- I think, you know,
1: whether you're speaking to a, a, a high profile politician or a member of the opposition, we often have, or even you're having a debate, somebody's got a, a, a you know, a, a very strong view on a particular subject. My, I think my, my role all the time is to hold them a council and, and, and offer the other side of the argument. And quite often, the other side of the argument can can involve some, a lot a lot of times, someone who's not in the studio, and it can often be a person of colour. So that's, you know, for me to have my perspective on that can can be quite useful because I perhaps know more people of colour, or I've lived that life. I've lived in Birmingham. You know, so so things like race and immigration and uh, and, and British identity are, are things that I feel naturally uh, that that I can speak about. But ultimately, your role, wherever you're speaking to, is to uh, hold them accountable and, and offer an opposing view. And and I, and I think. You know, for, for all the time I've been on GMB, there's always been, you know, we've had whether it be Brexit and immigration and Black Lives Matter with the with the with the murder of of George Floyd and then and then also uh, the the race and stuff involving Meghan Markle. I mean, it's kind of there, you know, and uh, and and the sort of Islamophobia or anti-Semitism. Um, so a lot of the times the, the agenda's been laid out for me. So I think for me, you know, it's. It, it is quite important to talk about my life experiences and to share some of them. Similarly, how I think some of the female presenters would have done throughout Me Too, and still do when we talk about Me Too. So I think it's uh, uh, you know quite useful. I think for uh, for all concerned, really.
0: I'm curious to know about your approach as you see it to Twitter. Yeah, you can you can you can be quite strong in your views on Twitter, or you can articulate your views strongly. Talk to us about that and, and perhaps the tightrope you, as a presenter that you might have to tread.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, it is a tightrope and impartiality is is key. But I, I, I do believe, though, there are certain things that just because politicians have made them into political issues doesn't necessarily mean they're political issues. You know, I think when we're talking of uh, human beings coming over on boats and of those very recently who have died in in our waters that's not a political issue that is a question of life and death that is humanity similarly with black lives matter and i think when somebody accuses somebody of uh, makes allegations of racism or sexism or talks about their mental health the all these kind of issues they are human issues they're not necessarily political issues so i think for me i'm you know for me i think it's i always have done these are things that i utterly believe in and i think it doesn't matter whether you're Labour, Liberal Democrat, Conservative, uh, whichever party you're at. I would always defend those those important values and issues.
0: You spent a lot of time presenting on Radio Five Live across different slots, and I'm I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm interested.
1: I know that tells you everything, doesn't it? <laughs> that, that goes to you know When you're asking me before, it's sort of like. You know, how do you do... That's that's been the story of my career a lot of the times, actually. You know, you're never quite... I did drive time. I think I did a mid-morning show, and you know, the afternoon slot. So, then I did late night. So, yeah, you're constantly moving around a little bit sometimes. Yeah,
0: I think that's wonderful. I think because you're exposed to different audiences yeah. because you're working at different times of day, there's a different feel to different shows. So I think that shows what a strong broadcaster you are. I'm just interested to know what you make of the differences between radio broadcasting and television broadcasting.
1: Well, I, I think... I think there's a real big difference. I have to say between what ITV does to what the BBC does. I mean, I I never in honestly, if, if you'd asked me well, how long I've been with ITV, been now four or five years. I mean, if somebody had said to me seven years ago, "Oh, you're you're going to end up hosting Good Morning Britain on 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 ITV," I, I would have laughed in their face because I looked, you know, you look at that, and go, "Well, that's that's you know, they're like that's the Eamon Holmes territory. That's that sort of really kind of." Big, you know, kind of try and find the light amongst the dark um, entertainment morning news show, and I was very much at Five Live, and I did a bit of radio too, and I think I did some documentaries for the BBC, and I felt very much that my career was going to be at the BBC, and I was having some quite, quite um, serious conversations with Five Live at one point about doing something a bit more, a um, bit more permanent, but I think you know I, I was so delighted when shocked actually when ITV got in touch but I think the difference I've found is not just between radio and television is is that it's sort of the thing about GMB what they do is I I think their journalism is absolutely excellent it is it is no worse or better than anything else you find anywhere else I think it's right up there if not at times I think you know leading the way and I think some of the awards they've won proves that but I think it's also it, it connects with an audience in a way that a lot of television forget to do i think i uh you know and i think you know you, you can look down that lens and i think people watch it and they think susanna reed adol ray richard madeley ben shepherd they are talking to me they are actually talking to me and i think that is probably television allows you to do that you can stare down the eyes and you can do that but i think it's about style and i think radio can do that but i just think sometimes some radio has, has sort of forgotten what it's what it's there to do, is to be the listener's friend. I mean, I, you know, I, I remember when I first started in radio uh, back in 94, 95, somebody t- said to me, you know, just the trick about radio is imagine you're speaking to one person. I mean, I was working on very small radio shows, so it probably was only one person listening at the time, but, but you know, it's imagine you're, lis- you're speaking to just one, and almost picture them, you know, and, and, and that gives you that personal feel. Um, uh, and 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 so I think I think it's not necessarily a difference between radio and TV. I think podcasts, look at podcasts, like podcasts are very similar to radio, but I think podcasts can feel very personal now. I you know I, I think it's the, probably the way we listen. It doesn't feel like a show. You might be lying in bed, uh, you might be in your car, you might be having a walk. But I think I think the podcasts have sort of broken free of 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 structure and you know, the felt that they're part of a of, of a station that they've all got to sound the same. Uh, and I think um I think TV and GMB and ITV in particular has always done that.
0: I'm interested that you thought that you might have been too straight down the line to do GMB because, I mean, you did entertainment stuff as part of what you were doing with the Asian Network, wasn't it? And you've DJed and, you know, you've also, and we'll come to this a bit later, I mean, you've had a career as well in sort of primetime entertainment. We'll talk about Citizen Khan a little later.
1: Yeah, I, I, you, you're right. And I think, it, you know, I can see, I can see see why ITV probably thought I might fit. I mean, I, I actually, it was Emma Gormley, who's head of head of daytime at ITV. And I think, obviously, uh, Kevin Liger would have had a part to play in it as well. But, but Emma uh, remembered me from when I used to do, when I was on Asian Network, I used to come out and do newspaper reviews on the Rain show for some years ago. And I think from there, she kind of remembered me and probably saw and heard other things that I'd done. And yes, you're absolutely right. I, I guess that's what they were thinking. But to put it bluntly, and this is, you know, and this is saying this I, in complimentary to ITV, that you looked at ITV at that time, and I didn't think my face would ever fit. You know, I just think, you just think, you, you, you thought, you know, the BBC were probably the one that were going to nurture my career, because I'd experienced that with Citizen Khan. And I just didn't think my face would fit. But I think, I really do credit ITV when the whole diversity issue on television you know, became apparent, and more and more people spoke about it, and everyone realised. I think a lot of people in broadcasting looked around and went, "Oh gosh, yeah, okay, we 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 have probably got this wrong." ITV didn't mess around. I think you know they made some really quick decisions, and I you know, and I think that that's probably I, be- I benefit that, and I'm and I'm grateful of that. Uh, but yes, I mean, you know, yes, I suppose it's, the, it's they looked at me and said, well, he, he's you know, he does personality stuff, does entertainment stuff." Um, but still, to sort of think that I can anchor a, a morning news show was was quite um, you know was quite a compliment and quite a surprise.
0: What sort of level? Modesty aside here, what sort of level of fame have you reached? What's your experience of fame? Do people come up and continue conversations with you on the street or in cafes that you've started on Good Morning Britain? <laughs> do, do people come up and say hello when you're walking in the park? I mean, well, how does it work for you?
1: Yeah, they do. I mean, if I go for a little walk, they will. If I'm, like, you know, I go down to my mighty Aston Villa. I'm a season ticket holder there, and you know, a lot of people come and say hello. And and yes, you know, you go out on an evening, they might. I mean, I suppose the thing is for me is I like, I never know what it is they they're a fan of, so I have to play this sort of game when they go oh you 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 know you, I love you on there I'm going what well, okay what is it going to be is it going to be lingo <laughs> the new Citizen Khan or Ackley Bridge which is still very popular with people so I, I you know that's that that's always quite interesting or, or or they can't quite sometimes they can't quite work out when they kind of I think i know you do i know you and you know so it's interesting yeah i suppose i'm at that level um like kind of i'm happy with that level i mean somebody somebody in the business said to me who's been in the business a long long time worked in radio said uh, and I I've done a lot of television so sort of gave me some advice saying you know the the true the real sort of secret to to real sustainability and having a life is just to be under the radar a little bit in your career and so I think I'm still probably slightly under that radar. I mean, I think, you know, I, I know I'm doing the morning news show and lingo, but, you know, I'm still, you know, and I think I think that kind of is quite nice. You still have a relative amount of anonymity. I know some people who probably can't walk down even their own street, you know. Uh, so I'm grateful of that.
0: Like me, you, I think, received quite a lot of unpleasantness on Twitter, haven't you? And And yeah. I wonder how you sort of deal with that
1: yeah i mean i engage with it because you know it's it's not nice to be called uh, a racist or what's the latest on race beta, which is a new thing that's come out which is if you say anything about race suddenly you're 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 sort of instigating a a, a race discussion when it's not required or something you know uh, and and it, you know I, I don't like that because i know in my heart of hearts i'm not that person and, and it's exactly the opposite of what i'm trying to do you know i've always said when you stand up for a person of colour you are actually standing up for all minorities and that even means you know the white working class or often where I will get some of the abuse from because in the end what are you doing when you stand up for racism you're not not standing up for people of colour you're standing against people who are oppressing people of colour you're standing against people who are in positions of power uh, and those people you know it's like the, it's like the old poem isn't it first they came for you know and then they came for the Jews you know it's a sort of so you know that's that's always been my intention so when people get in touch on twitter i mean sometimes i think i i fall for the whole bots thing now what i've realized is very recently and you just forget don't you you just always treat somebody as a genuine person i had there was one only just a few weeks ago i think about seven or eight just been i was actually being mauled by seven or eight accounts they all looked a bit fake all pretty much saying the same thing i engaged with one or two of them until i got to the point that i can't engage anymore as so i blocked one they all disappeared <laughs> Every single one of them disappeared. I've not had anything for about a couple of weeks now. So I thought, that, so I realised now, oh God, I felt, You I know, I, I I sort of fell for one, one lone ranger in his bedroom. But having said that, I do sometimes believe that, you know, even if somebody says the most horrible thing to you, might even use the P word, might be racist, or might have completely got your viewpoint wrong, engaging with them could lead to a, a, a better scenario. It's not going to happen all the time. It might be one in ten people, and it, often it does happen. Very rarely, but often, it, you know, it can happen when somebody will say, "Okay, fair enough." You know, all right, fair enough. You know, I I understand now, but or whatever, and and you go, "Great, well done, cheers, mate." You know, and that's it, and that's the end of the Twitter conversation. And that sometimes happens, and I think that comes from my my growing up, my my parents. You know, we we grew up in a a, a white area in Birmingham, suffered racism didn't get on with the neighbours they they didn't want us there initially in fact we found out years later that somebody on the road tried to buy the house that we were moving into before we moved in I mean it was it, you know it was horrible it was a national front times of the 70s in Birmingham but then when we left that house 19 20 years later you know the neighbours were uncle John and auntie Gladys and they were crying on the steps and didn't want us to leave you know and and that teaches me that, you know, that, that often it's not racism. It's not the racism in its purest sense that they hate the color of your skin. It can be ignorance and fear. And, and, and often you sit down you spend time with each other, you live next to each other, you go to school together, you go to work together, you realize, oh, hang on, we're just the same. So I think sometimes it's worth having that dialogue.
0: What sort of impacts, and this is probably a difficult question to answer in anything like brief form, but what sort of impact has racism had on you?
1: Yeah, hugely. I suppose you don't think so at the time. You think when I was, when when you're a child, you're quite naive about it, or you're just innocent, or you just think, oh, just somebody calling me names, and I'll just forget about it. But it's amazing how it sticks with you. You know, I only remembered recently, <laughs> I remember on my road, I used to, we used to play with my mates, and we used to go just about maybe 400 yards away from my house on because there was a little cul-de-sac, so you could ride your bike a little bit better and play football against the wall and stuff. And there was a quite a few of us, you know, and I was the only Asian kid there. probably about seven or eight lads. And I was the only Asian kid. And I remember once one of the kids' dads come, came out of his house and said to me, go back to where you come from. At that time, <laughs> this is almost hilarious. At that time, I thought he meant go down 300 yards back to where my house is. I genuinely thought that. And I remember saying to my mate, going, oh, should we, does he mean go and play outside my house? And my mate just looked at me going, oh, I don't think he quite realised. I think, honestly, and it's only very, very recently, and I mean the last sort of couple of years, it's dawned on me going, oh, my God, he didn't mean that, did he? He didn't mean that. So I think it it absolutely does stick with you. But as you grow up and you mature and you have that conversation, you realise, ah, oh, okay, that was what I was going. So you I think when you're a person of colour, you can't get away from. That's when the, that's why it annoys me when people call me. You can't get away from your race. It's it's made clear to you from the day you apply for a job. It's you know made clear for you from when you want to fly. You know, if I want to go to America, like my race and my religion and everything comes into play you know it's it's right it's it's right there similarly as women would say, say how how their sort of gender is is often placed as a, as a level of more importance than anything else about them and so so i so uh, yeah i mean it's 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 had a huge impact but i i believe in turning all those negatives into positive you know i i don't have children but i've got two wonderful nephews and and, and i always think about them i think well you know my with a with the platform i have or the voice that i've got and the people i meet and doing things like this matthew you sort of you know you try to have the conversation and and without sign of sound all sort of you know uh messiah like but you know if we can all leave the world slightly better uh then that's a then that's that's a good thing i mean and we are going through really tough times i know i don't think any of us of our generation thought that we would be in this post-brexit area of division and and, and leaders in such important countries appear to be dividing, as we thought we would have moved on from it, but we're not. So it's a constant reminder that those of us that have suffered, those of us that have got a perspective, that we should stand up and speak.
0: How do you look back on your childhood generally, adult?
1: Gosh, uh, it was a, it, 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 in, in many ways, look, I mean, you always got, you know, always very, very grateful, aren't you? You know, I sort of, I look around now, and with with the immense, uh, you know, poverty and, and what children are going through today, probably already always have gone through but you know we get to hear about it more and how people go without food I mean I feel very very lucky my my parents were you know they did they didn't come here with anything really Uh, but my mother was from East Africa Kenya so she had an education she could speak English Uh, she went to a place called Kisimu Girl School which was actually linked to Cambridge University you know she had a really good level of English uh, my dad was a laborer from Pakistan, came here, became a bus driver. Uh, my mother worked, at, funnily enough, in the Im- immigration department of the home office. Um, um, but they were aspirational and they 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 came here to work hard. They never ever, ever claimed benefits. They had often had two, three jobs, uh, wanted to do better for themselves, wanted to live in a nice house, have a nice car, get their kids to school and university. So I was very, very lucky to have that. From my uh, from my parents took us on holidays when they could afford to as well, and so all that was was fantastic. But my parents went through a a divorce when I was very young, about ten or eleven. But actually, they didn't actually complete the divorce; they separated, uh, but lived in the same house for six seven years. And it was tough. That was tough. I mean, at the time, I felt it was normal, and, and perhaps lots of families have gone through it, but. I look back sometimes and I think oh god no, no child should ever be put through that because I think that's really had a big influence on me in terms of uh my independence and you know all sorts of relationship issues and trust and stuff it's very hard you know so so when I look at my family upbringing it's been um you know I'm really grateful in so many ways but but some of it has been, has been incredibly, incredibly tough. But, it, you know, gosh, I, I don't think there's any family in the land that hasn't, ha- doesn't, you know, there's no such thing as a perfect family, is there? And that's the thing. And, but I just spend most of my time at school staring out the window and not listening to the teacher going, why is my family like this? Why can't I be like Andrew over there, who seems to have a really nice life? But you, as you grow up, you realise everybody's got their own issues.
0: What were you doing with Citizen Khan? Because you were kind of lampooning the background that you came from, or stereotypes of the background that you came from.
1: I think initially, what I was really doing was, you know, it was Citizen Khan for me. I mean, I was doing comedy on my radio show at the BBC Asian Network. Uh, I started the Asian Network in, what, 2001, 2002, left in about 2008, 2009. Um, And I was doing comedy on there, and I started doing comedy sketches. But it all changed, you know, from from 9-11. 2001, I remember being on the radio, and I'd only just started and... Up until that point, no one really knew about Muslims in this country. No one really talked about Muslims. We might have you know talked about the Iran and Iraq War or Iran and but you know, maybe Salman Rushdie, but that was quite a long time ago. And, um, but suddenly the world started to talk about Muslims like they were the enemy. Not terrorists, not Muslim terrorists, not Islamists as they say now, but it was Muslims and it was Islam. Islam became the enemy. And I got really like lots of Muslims got really scared I thought oh my gosh this is it this is our. this is going to be the rest of our life then so, but the thing is i had this other voice inside me that was always looking to do comedy and i grew up watching things like dave allen only fools and horses faulty towers monty python all these things and not the 9 o'clock news rowan atkinson's like my hero and you, want, you know grew up watching comedy and realizing the power of comedy and what comedy can do comedy can universalize a community a community it can really bring communities together i remember watching dave allen with my dad dave allen would do jokes about the pope and uh, catholicism and the irish community and my dad would be howling i'd have to get my dad to explain some of the jokes like, and and dad was laughing, not at Catholicism, but just laughing at, you know, I think he connected so much with it. He'd be like, oh, you know, he's talking about the priest, but that's like, we you know, when we go to the mosque and the imam says this about God and fire, it's the same thing. We're like, oh, okay. And I just, that stuck in my head. And I think, for me, I as soon as nine eleven, 11 I thought, okay, well, what's going to happen now? There's going to be lots of pointing of fingers. There's going to be lots of discourse and debate but eventually, we're all going to have, we're going to have to tell our stories. There's going to have to be storytelling. There's going to have to be a counter narrative. And I thought, well, that's where I could come in. That's what I could. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be up to tell the story of what Muslims are really like. That we're not that. We're not those people. So I think that's where Citizen Khan came from. His idea of going, let me use comedy to bring this character who people would look at and go, "We've oh, got a long beard. He's got a hat. He's a bit old school. I bet he's got his old views." Oh, well, guess what? He he has got some of these quite old, draconian views. But actually, underneath that hard exterior, he's just like Basil Fawlty. He's just like Del Boy. You know, he's just like Mr Bean. He's just a funny, warm-hearted guy. And I think that's what was the driving force behind Citizen Khan, really.
0: What was it like being one of the writers on that and one of the stars of it? Because, I mean, you played Mr Khan himself
1: yeah well it was amazing you know sort of it was incredible i'd never acted before i'd never done any theater or, you know i think i've done a few sketches on the radio on my own radio show which i would police myself you know the, um uh so it was just unbelievable i, I did so I, I actually did mr khan on, on bellamy's people before that with charlie Higson and paul whitehouse and that's where the bbc noticed mr khan and a couple of other characters so I, so that was it but in terms of in, in, you know, we were then commissioned to do a studio sitcom in front of a live studio audience. It's all going to be filmed. We're going to film six shows in seven weeks. You know, D- Dame Judy Dench, I remember in a recent interview, said she's done everything, hasn't she? And Dame Judy Dench, who I worked with re- recently on *Blythe Spirit*, she said that the hardest thing she's ever done is studio sitcom. She said it's the most ridiculous thing because you learn a script and then you just perform it once, and it and and you 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 never get your lines right and it's filmed in front of a live studio audience, and you put it on primetime television. It's absolutely nuts. So it was crazy, but and, and and suddenly it was my baby, but the thing I quickly learned, and had to learn, was that you've got to put trust in others, and I was so lucky that I had a great uh, producer, exec, my exec producer, a guy called Mark Freeland at the BBC, who Mark has championed and worked with so many people from um, Matt and David at Little Britain, and and James Corden with, with Gavin and Stacey and, and Miranda and Mrs. Browns and worked really big, big comedies. So I knew I was in good hands. He introduced me to uh, Anil Gupta and Richard Pinto, who did goodness gracious me. Paul Schlesinger was our first uh, producer and he, he, he'd sort of done things like 2012. And, you know, so, uh, so he, he was incredible. So, uh, and W1A and all of that. So So I was in really good hands. But the thing I had to learn was that. Yes, this is your baby, but you've got to allow others to hold your baby. You've got to tr- put your trust in others, uh, and that's what I had to do, and and I'm glad I did. And, and you know, and and you had a certain might have had a certain vision of what you wanted to see Khan to be, and then certain things you have to let go of and and put faith in others. And I'm glad I did because it was, you know, it became a huge success.
0: Explain to us the process, and, and this obviously would be different for different actors, but the process of stepping out of Adol and into Mr Khan when there's such a gulf between the two personalities.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I, I
0: don't know what it's like for other actors, but I think when you
1: have a character as, well, has become such, so big as Khan, I think probably it's a two way thing really. I think the reason why it's kind of becoming so big because it it feels like it's part of me. I just feel this constant calm on my shoulder. I feel he's always there with me because I've sort of really ing- you know got myself ingrained inside of him so it's not it's not difficult to switch into khan um because you know him so well I mean, I performed him for sort of five five seasons uh so I think making that switch is into the character is uh is probably the easier bit but it's but it's all the other stuff it's all the mechanics of acting that I think you know that those are things you have to work on suddenly oh god how, how do I learn a script again what do I do and it suddenly comes back to you okay what's the best way of doing it you know how quick how many days do I have to learn this script for and you know and all of that and where do I stand and what you know and but I again you know you speak to great actors and they'll always say that sometimes you know you going on a set every time is like going on set for the first time. So, so 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 that's the that's the kind of hard part. The easy part I think is sort of getting into the character,
0: you know. For those who haven't watched Lingo, just sum it up for us and also what sort of skill set are you tapping into as a game show host? Because as we've discussed, you do such a variety of things. News, entertainment, acting, writing. Yeah. DJ as we've said being a game show host is different again
1: yeah but I, I think i mean first of all lingo i feel like it's it's the show without any general knowledge questions it's it and that's the great appeal to it you don't need general knowledge you don't need to be an expert in anything you don't even have to be particularly great at words you know some great wordsmiths have come in and they you know uh, sometimes you, you've got to go with your instincts you can you know, uh, anybody can get on with it, uh, can, can be really good at it. So um, that's the great thing about it. Kids play at home and are really good. Grandparents are really good. I mean, I, I get lots of messages from people say, oh, my, my, my dad's got Alzheimer's or dementia. But when he, Lingo comes on, he just sort of, he just switches on and he's shouting at the telly. So it's similarly with your kids who've got autism and stuff. So that, that's lovely. So it appeals to everybody. That's that, That's a great thing about it. It's a word game. In terms of how I approach it, I mean, the first thing, you know, I, I kind of make sure I get, get the game right in my head, know my rules, know the game. I know that sounds obvious, but really know the game really well. Know that game so that so that can come natural to you, the game itself. And then I think it's about having fun and making the making the contestant feel, you know, feel okay and feel welcome and feel comfortable. That's That's my job, really. And then I almost try not to host the game, but play the game with them. It's almost like if you're playing a board game around, around the dinner table and somebody's in charge, you know, the person who wants to be, you know, the banker for, you know, Monopoly or, you know, whose board game it is. This is my board game, so you know, I'll, I'll lay it all out. Okay, And here's yours, here's yours. That's kind of what I'm doing. And then we're all playing along. It's, it's how I like to do it. But I think the most important thing for me is, is kind of trying to make the uh, contestant feel comfortable. Um, you know, I, I know there's a tendency with a lot of game show hosts sometimes, perhaps more prime time to be a little bit, cheeky or or have little digs at the contestants and I think that's great and that's funny I'm a bit old school I think just growing up with people like Bruce Forsyth and Bob Monkhouse and you know all these guys I think I just want to be that kind of that sort of nice presenter (laughs) might do a little cheesy little gag but really be nice and just be nice to the contestants and make sure they go home and having the best day of their lives because for the you know lots of them, it is the first time they've been on tv and it's a massive moment for them
0: what do you like when you're not at work? What's Adol Ray like when he's socialising, when he's chilled out? And, and I suppose actually, what do you like when you're at work? Like, what do you like? What do you see yourself as being like to work with? I
1: think I think when I'm when I'm with my friends outside of work, I mean, I don't know, probably have to ask them. I think I can be a little bit quiet at times. I do can sometimes have those. I think when I'm with family a lot, I'm very quiet. I don't like to talk about my work with family. I, I feel like I just like to try and keep that separate and just just be my brother's brother be my nephew's uncle I just like I just want to be that guy I think and so I try to sort of avoid it It might frustrate them sometimes because they'll sort of say oh what's going on and I'll just give them one way. oh it's all right yeah it's great lingo going oh yes thanks you know and and so I think I try to separate it I really want to just I know how precious family is and uh, and I'm remembering that all the time in terms of work I don't know. I think probably when I'm on set, if things like Citizen Khan, I know I was a real perfectionist and I wanted things done a certain way or I have high standards. I think probably people will see that. Uh, I think certainly with with GMB, if I, you know, if I really feel strongly about a particular subject that we're not covering, I will, you know, really, you know, make a point of sort of sending an email or having a conversation, you know, politely and everything, but I will really, you know, say what I believe in. And I think, I think, um, people are are appreciative of that but the one thing i'm learning all the time when you're on set is sort of got to be so grateful of the people you work with and um you know i think you know i i still feel that i'm quite sort of uh young in that space at times and i'm learning all the time Uh, but to be able to just have a conversation and you know say hello and speak to the people that you that that make your job easier every day is, is really important
0: what are your passions? Because you mentioned that you're an Aston Villa season ticket holder, but I know that you love cricket as well. So yeah, t- t- yeah. T- tell us a, tell us a bit about your passions. And if you had to choose, I'm wrapping this this question is in, in the wider question so I can cheat and get an extra one in. But if you had to choose between never being able to go to a cricket game again and giving up your Aston Villa season ticket, what would it be?
1: Oh, my gosh. Right. So my passions, yeah. I suppose cricket is my number one passion. I know it's my number one passion because you know I'm that guy that will be in fact if I'm on you if I'm on a TV set or at GMB you know when you're sort of starting I don't know why we do it but you're either steadying your nerves or you're just refocusing or you're realigning yourself or you're just coming back to who you are I will just sort of mime a forward defensive shot or or do a little sort of arm action of a sort of leg swinger you know in, in swinger or something you know or a leg cutter I, I, I'm always doing that so I know cricket is Literally, in my blood. I played cricket. And I kind of wished that uh, I, I could have gone on to play more professionally, and that, that opportunity didn't didn't arise. I love football. I love Aston Villa. I love Aston Villa because we are. Yes, we won the European Cup in eighty two, but ever since then, we have been the mid table team. We've gone down a couple of times, got ourselves back up. I love that about Aston Villa. I think that's real football. It makes it exciting. As much as it hate, I hate it. You know, and you are crying your eyes out and pulling your hair out um what else do i love passion wise um i i do love and i know you said, i love i love people i love being with people i love socializing i love being my friends There's nothing better than having 15 people around my house for dinner and drinks and a dance around the kitchen i love all of that uh, you know i think it's i think it's really important and nourishing in answer to your question oh god how would i choose between football and cricket oh my god i can't do that This, i, I uh, I'm, going to cho- I'm not gonna be one of those that can't. I'm gonna choose, and I and I would my Villa fans will hate me, but I'm gonna choose cricket. Because I think I could probably put up, I could probably watch Villa on TV at home. I could probably do that. But the idea of not being able to go to Lords and watch England versus Pakistan play, or England versus Australia play, you know, or be at Edgebuston and watch Pakistan India in a nail-biting, you know. Champions League trophy semi-final or a World Cup final or whatever. It that that just seems absolutely impossible because there's something very special about being in the cricket. It's more than just a sport. And I think this is the thing. Cricket, people who are non-cricket fans don't, don't quite get this. It's a battle. It's about life. It's there's no other sport like it. There's no other sport where the captain is not really, you know, it, it, and in football, the captain is not really doing anything. In cricket, it's about that captain. It's the leadership of those eleven men who have all got a very specific role to play, and they've all got to come together, and it's so exciting. It's
0: great. So cricket. I, yeah. I have great friends who are passionate about cricket. They're, they're born in Britain. They're, they're British Pakistani, and they support. I think probably ultimately Pakistan. We have yeah. a, we have a WhatsApp group. We call it the Zinderbad WhatsApp group. We go to <laughs> we go, to, we, go to, we go to cricket together. Love it. We, we, we absolutely love it and yeah they I, I, certainly one of them is a big england fan as well yeah but i suspect if she, if she had to choose she'd probably oh Pakistan. Yeah. and i'm yeah. curious is that is that the same with you yeah it is i i, I would
1: always choose pakistan over it. you know i was born to a pakistani father who was cricket mad. i mean there's a there's a photo of me which we can't find we've been trying to find it of me at edgbaston with a um, a t-shirt on saying, you know, Pakistan rules okay. When I was about four years old, you know, my brother, my older brother had won Pakistan win the World Cup t-shirt on or something. You know, I think it took us to 79 World Cup, but it's the potential World Cup. So once that's ingrained in you, gosh, you know, it's like it's like your dad being a Liverpool fan and once to put that in you that you, you can't you can't undo that. But here's the thing, I'm a Pakistan cricket fan because of England, <laughs> because of the Empire. That's why I'm a Pakistan cricket fan because britain and you know and and its and its empire and you know taking cricket and expanding cricket like it did in those countries pakistanis became and indians became huge huge cricket fans because of because of britain so um so so, so it's a real nuanced and complex thing but then and also but also there is you speak to my brother my brother was a much better cricketer than i i uh was and he actually lots of people say that my brother should have played first class county cricket, but suffered a lot. And I think we also grew up at a time where, you know, institutionally cricket was a fortress. I mean it still is now. I'm doing a I'm doing a documentary now for Channel Four on the whole racism in cricket issue. And it and it's quite startling how it hasn't really moved on as much as we, we think it should have done. But but back then it was it was really tough. So so maybe as well it supporting Pakistan as you grow up is a bit of a protest against the institution of English cricket of, of the time but then s- suddenly when you see people like I mean it goes before Moen Ali I mean there were other there were OA Shah and but Moen in particular wearing his heart on his sleeve the beard you know not afraid to, and, and not hiding his faith and his identity was such a massive moment so that sort of turns your eye a little bit to England. You go, well, that's the England I want to see.
0: Adol Rashid as well.
1: And, uh, yeah, Adol Rashid, absolutely fantastic. And then, but it's not just about, you know, I don't want people to think, oh, he only likes England because there's 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 a couple of Pakistani players in there. No, it's the way it fits into the team. It's when you hear Owen Morgan talk about Moina. When Owen Morgan was uh, gets asked, why did you win that game? And he turns around and says, because Allah was on our side. <laughs> oh my God that is incredible not that you know we're not trying to say oh great they're going to be muslims no it's just that well that's just it's just what i was talking about with citizen khan it's it's universalizing if that's a word you know cultures it's bringing everyone to the same platform it's it's equalizing everything and it's just beautiful to see and sport can do that and the way those young men owen morgan Rashid, uh, Mo Moen ali have conducted themselves on and off the pitch is exemplary. And that's the way we should be.
0: Has it become easier as a British Asian football fan to go to Premier League games in your experience?
1: Uh, yes, I think it has. I think it definitely has. When I was a kid, I wasn't allowed to go. My, my mother, I remember saying to my mum, my kids at my school were going, so, you know, Mark's dad said I can go to Villa Park. No, you're not going. Because her view of, of football at times, it, it was racist and she was partly right. And she'd never been to a match such so a, you know, and then it was, you know, probably not seated or all standing up or whatever. And it was, you know, perhaps it was a little bit hairy back then in the 70s and 80s. I think it's 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 much better now. There are still at every club, there are small minorities who, you know, who are still hold, you know, racist views. Uh, they're quite tribal. So I think that's still the case. I mean, I have to say, you know, put my hand up. I sit in corporate seats. So I probably experience something very different to others. But even there, and then when you look around the ground, you know, at Villa Park, at the moment, most people of colour are going to be either serving you your food, um, stewards, or, or playing on the pitch. <laughs> you know, so it's still, I think we've still got a long way to go. But I think, I think it will change. And it's one thing that upsets me a little bit about Villa. And I know they're very, they're very aware of it at Villa Park because I'm a part of the Aston Villa Foundation, which is what, um, which looks to support ch- local charities and communities to try and do work for the community, which is what football has always intended to do. But but the sad fact is that, you know, we are in Aston, which is one of the most densely populated Muslim Asian areas, big Pakistani, Bangladeshi and Indian community there. And yet none of them will go into Villa Park. And, and I'm sure some of them do, but hardly any of them. So I think... It, that's a shame, but I'm hoping, hopefully that will change in time.
0: Do you have any special skills that we should know about?
1: <laughs> not really. I don't think I do. I think, I, think I'm, I think I'm okay at a few things, not brilliant at
0: any. There's an uncertainty, final question, an uncertainty to the sort of career that you've pursued or the sort of career that you've sort of found yourself in. And I just wonder how you sort of process that. And also just want to get a, an overall sense of, you know, whether you're happy because you've got so much outward success, even if you think, oh, you're not the guy who gets the contract or whatever. But to uh, most of us, you've got, you know, huge success. And I wonder whether you would describe yourself as happy overall.
1: Yeah, well, I, I, it's a really good question. It's something I think about a lot of them as I'm sort of 48, I'll be 49 this year. You get to an age and, and you know, and, and it, and I have been lucky. I mean, something like lingo came at a time when, you know, there wasn't much going on in my career. or I mean, I was doing a bit of G&B and and we would just gone to lockdown, actually. And, you know, you think, oh, God, what am I going to do next? You know, suddenly that comes along. Actly Bridge appeared to come at a, a really surprising time. Even now, I'm just about to do an acting job uh, for a TV channel, which I can't say too much about. But that sort of comes. So, so I'm, you know, I, I really have, you know, I'm, I'm lucky things come up, things come my way. Oh my gosh, I do worry. I worry a lot. I really worry about the future. And, I, you know, and that might be a little bit of us worrying about the finances. If you worry about financially. I mean, I've set up a production company now, actually, and we're sort of trying to develop projects for other writers and talent. And, and I think that's kind of partly me securing a pension fund. But, but I think it really is about, we're Birmingham based, and it really is, I'm hoping, uh, going to be something that can, um, that that can really explore and, and nurture new talent, but it's good as soon as you, you asked that because only recently have I have I come to terms with that. If I I think the test is if tomorrow GMB said you know thanks, Adol, but we won't be using you anymore. There was no more lingo. Nothing came along for another. I I I would I would sit back and I would as much I would be quite disappointed and be upset about all of that, but I think I'd, I'd be really grateful of the career I've had. You know, I think like, oh gosh, well, you had Citizen Car. you managed your actually Bridge. You did you did one of the biggest news programs in the country. You know, you did a quiz show. I think I'd have to look back and go, well, that was okay. And I'm ho- I really hope that's the way I would react if that happened.
0: Adore, it's been really lovely having you on twenty questions with thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Matthew. I've really enjoyed it.